Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Day Zero podcast. I'm Spectre. With me is Z. This week, we have some updates to stories we covered last week, uh, some binary exploits, including an iOS RCE that was published by Project Zero, as well as some research with defending against Linux kernel uh, use after freeze and uh, using Alexa to snoop on your uh, your mobile activities. So before that, though, I will quickly mention we are going on a break after next week, the 14th. Uh, we're going on a break for two weeks until the 4th of January in the new year. Now that's out of the way, we'll jump into um, some of our news. So Google, uh, Google put out a blog post today about the Google Summer Internship Program. It seems like it's uh, a recap of the projects that uh, that were covered this year. Um, and I, I think we might have talked about some of them already when we when we covered the Google Summer uh, Summer of Code before. Yeah, well, I feel like we've definitely talked about some of the fuzzing stuff before. Uh, we talked about what some of the interns were doing. So I saw the update, figured it's another chance to kind of call out, because I do like what Google's doing with their internship program here and kind of offering some of those interns for, you know, the vulnerability research, um, for fuzzing research and things like that. Yeah, so they touch on some some cool things in this blog post. Um, mainly just, like I said, a recap of some of the work that's been done. Um, that work including porting new targets to OSS fuzz, as well as developing whole new fuzzers for complex targets like Nginx and Postgres. Um, they also investigated using Klee, which is a symbolic virtual machine for fuzzing. Have you ever uh, looked at Klee Z? Because I've definitely seen it mentioned quite a few times in some of the like circles that I'm in. Um, sorry, I was having mic problems. Uh, have we not? I'm pretty sure we've covered it before on episode, or at least talked I'm about thinking it before. Too. I can't remember if we did or not. Um, thank you for the uh, tier one sub, by the way, uh, Baliga. Thank you. Um, yeah, I feel like we might have talked about it before, but for some reason, my dumb brain can't remember exactly when no, we did No, I'm, I'm looking. I don't see any episode where I have it in my notes, so I might be mistaken about that. Yeah, I might be getting it confused from when I talked about it with some other people, because it does look kind of promising for We've, fuzzing. We have talked about some symbolic fuzzers before, or at least those that use it. Um, I think we've covered it mostly in the context of concolic, or sorry, hybrid execution. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely covered that uh, a while ago. But um, yeah, it looks promising to use in fuzzing. They do state, though, that 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 is a ways away. Uh, there's many issues that have to be worked through there. Um, and then some of the other things were like improving DS code uh, security. Um, there was also work done on providing sandboxing for some popular open source libraries, like I, I think like libtiff and, and stuff like that. Um, but there's there's a lot of other stuff in here too. We won't cover it all, obviously. Um, but you know, if you want to see what some of the interns were up to uh, during the summer at Google, there's a blog post for you, and it might even give you some ideas of what you might want to look at or or potentially utilize in whatever you're doing. So, yeah, just wanted to uh, quickly mention that we have an update to the story last week. Last week we talked about how a big uh, CFAA case was being argued. Um, on the same day as the podcast, actually. So it wasn't, we didn't have, I, I don't think it was argued until after we'd finished the podcast. Um, so this was the Van Buren versus United States suit. Um, quick, quick summary, it was a police officer that abused his position to access license plate information and private uh, information and used it outside of the professional environment. Um, he sold that information uh, to an FBI informant. Um, so 
mostly this article recaps what went on and some of the arguments that were made in the case um mostly from the justices angle well, i'm not going mean, to cover it's... everything but i think it can be summed up in in one quote um that said you were going to say something z i was just going to say i think the justice opinion here is really the only one that matters um yeah, although i'm exactly. curious what your uh summary quote is so i would say the the key quote for me was uh justice samuel alito who said this is a very difficult case to decide i really don't know what those statues are like what it seems like when I read through this was um, people are scared of the implications of how this case could go and nobody really knows how this should be interpreted. So that's okay, like see, the summary quote for me. When I was going through on this, I actually got the sense here that the justices were generally on the side of the more narrow interpretation. Um, and you kind of had two, two trains of thought on that. Um, on the more liberal from the few liberal justices left on there um kagan and uh sotomayor i'm not exactly sure on the pronunciation there uh both kind of were critical of the government's intention with that like just pushing it um and then kind of the more conservative side was taking a bit more of a concern with the government overreaching uh, so one was kind of more of a moral moral base and the other was uh, government overreach. But because of that, you kind of have the majority, it seems like, are kind of leaning towards the uh, more restrictive definition. Again, I'm not a um, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't give a lot of comment on the actual legal aspects. But I did get the sense here that we're probably going to get a more narrow reading or more narrow judgment on the basis of this. Uh, it seemed like most of the comments were critical of the government pushing this rather than of uh, Van Buren and his lawyer pushing that he was authorized to access, but just misused it. Um, like you did say, there is the case of, um, or at least a lot of this came back down to the fact that, yes, I mean, what this, uh, what Van Buren did wasn't acceptable for a police officer to do. But it shouldn't be the CFAA that punishes it. Um, there are other statutes that uh, make his actions illegal or that he can be punished for or punished using. Yeah, so the the defense that was made um, against the CFAA and the government by the uh, Van Buren's lawyer was basically the fact that the statute doesn't criminalize obtaining information that the defendant had the right to obtain. Um, and there's some pedantic argumentation going on there too. Well, so the uh, basically coming down argument... to the statement that he's not entitled so to obtain, focusing on that so uh, word there. Yeah, uh, that was say? the that was the government's argument. Um, the opposing argument was focused on the definition of the word so, or not the definition of the usage of the word so and how it applies. And that's where we saw both the or two of the uh, more liberal judges commenting on how that's being interpreted. Whereas the comments that we tend to get from like Gorshik and Kavanaugh were more focused on um, the other laws that could be used. At least that's where the comments came. Obviously we're only basing our understanding on what SCOTUS blog is saying. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the arguments I found interesting from uh, the justice I mentioned earlier was um, he quotes, 
many government employees are given access to all sorts of personal information, but if they use that for personal purposes to make money or carry out or protect criminal activity, they can do enormous damage. And it's showing how they, that's kind of why they have the problem with the government using the CFAA in this case, is because if the defense can successfully counter it, it opens up like a whole can of worms when it comes to, um, you know, like government employees and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I was kind of reading through this and thinking the same thing. Like, it, it seems really stupid to charge him under the CFAA. Um, like, surely there were other charges that would be, like, so much easier to stick. And that's kind of what the justices were getting at there. Um, they said, like, why are we here again on a, or a rather small state crime that is prosecutable under state law or other federal laws? It seemed like they were kind of annoyed that they even had to, like, deal with this case. Yeah, it seems like... Um... Because he was charged with some other things. Uh, we brought that up during the last episode. And those got dropped. Um, and the CFAA one was the one remaining. I'm not sure why they got dropped. If it was just part of like a plea that they would drop those charges and only leave them going for the CFAA case. Or if it was something like that that kind of led to it. But uh, there definitely were other charges raised. Including, I believe, a corruption charge which seems to make a lot more sense in this case. I'm um, abusing his power, getting paid for it. So do you have like a, a positive view of this, uh, of what the justice's opinions are here regarding CFAA, or do you think they're off the mark? It's, it seems like you're, you kind of agree with them. Well, I'm definitely than, uh, hoping for the narrow, more narrow interpretation here. So as it seems like that's the direction the justices are going, I'm kind of happy with that. Okay. I mean, my my main takeaway from this was just that uh, yeah, the F CFAA seems to be a mess. <laughs> they do mention here that's always a risk to put too much weight on discussion at an argument, um, kind of towards the end of this article, which is fair. Um, but they do mention how there's kind of the the dual problem of or the dual problem the government faces here is a core group of justices appear to think prosecution is fundamentally wrong-headed um and overlapping is another group of justices who think the language is far too vague to justify the broad reach of the government so that summarizes the two groups that i was trying to mention earlier uh but yeah i mean i i'm hoping that we get a more narrow definition out of this i we talked about this a lot last episode i don't think i need to restate everything but like there are implications for security research if you can so easily end up in the wrong, even when you're acting in good faith. Um, and th there's been so much progress over the last like 20 years from, you know, vulnerability reporting being like, you know, just don't do it because you can get charged for it to now there's, you know, all these bug bounties and it's a lot more open now. So it would be nice to kind of see the law come along with that. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. Um, like you said, though, I think if you, if you want to hear some of our discussion around that, um, go back to the last episode because we don't want to retread all the same ground. Um, so, yeah, you can watch that episode if you missed uh, some of our discussion on that part. So, Z, you have an update when it comes to the Snapchat SSRF we briefly touched on last week. Yeah, as you said, we touched on this last week. Um, Snapchat had an SSRF. Um, this was found by Namsek and some others. Um, and I believe they actually talked about it on a stream like right before we 
started our stream this dropped just before um, and i had mentioned what was interesting here was the fact that they were using dns3 binding to access the internal web points web endpoints which is interesting in one sense i thought they were using that to get around uh mitigation that was in place uh how it turns what it turns out is happening here actually is they end up using the dns3 binding uh to get around the same origin policy so they can add custom headers when they're making requests to those internal ips uh, that allows them to add um one of the headers the google the x google metadata request header which gives you full access kind of to the metadata api uh, so i just wanted to call it that little aspect because that is i think a unique and interesting aspect of this issue in terms of how they exploited it that we just completely missed last week all right so We'll kick off our exploit segment uh, with a remote code execution as system through 3D printer management software. So this is Repetier server. Um, so they started off by discovering uh, the application had the application had a feature that allowed calling external commands. Um, so the rest of the process uh, and the blog post is basically around how do I access that feature? Um, so it's kind of a sync to source methodology going on here. You know, I, I found a dangerous functionality. How do I reach it? Um, so they ended up finding four bugs, uh, three of which were chained for the remote code execution. The first bug isn't super impactful or interesting. Um, it's mostly just an arbitrary content issue where you can upload a watermark and they check the extension on it, I think, but they don't check the content. Um, so you can, and you can use another endpoint to read that data back. So since they don't check the content, you can use it as kind of a like a side channel, which is is what it's used for later on. Um, the second issue is a, another file upload related issue, uh, though more interesting this time. Uh, when creating a printer, a configuration file gets created and a directory gets created with more assets and whatnot. Um, and there's a directory traversal in the printer name, uh, which can allow you to write to file locations outside of the intended path. Um, in this case, they were able to use it to write to the file location used for loading external commands, um, though they couldn't fully control the contents. And that's where the third issue comes into play, which is yet another file upload related issue, um, but kind of the reverse situation of the second issue. Um, with the last issue, you could control the path to some degree, but not the contents. This one, you can control the contents uh, partially, but not the path. And this was through the replace printer configuration feature which, as the name implies, it allowed you to update the printer configuration. Um, it does do some checking on that config you upload to check if it's valid, um, but the author found that those checks weren't really sufficient. Um, they don't really go into details, but it seems you can just put whatever you need in there and then add whatever you want on top. Uh, they don't validate everything. Um, and that allows them to re replace the configuration file set up with the second issue uh, to execute arbitrary commands. Now, what's worth noting is this issue does require the user to reboot to exploit the issue. Um, I believe it's because the external commands are only executed on initialization, um, and they couldn't find an issue to trigger that restart. So they, they kind of just have to hope and wait for the user to manually restart. Um, so Which for first... something like this can definitely take a little while. Um, yeah. I, I do want to comment here. So... The external command seems just like a convenience feature where it's like even in their description when they're talking about it, they show a screenshot from the documents where it's like, you know, sometimes it's convenient to run shell commands without needing to open a shell. Um, 
it, it, one of their examples is the shutdown now thing. I mean, like, it's fair, but this just feels like an unnecessary feature. Especially, like, for shutdown, like, that seems like something they could just offer and not offer this really dynamic functionality. Um, it, it's just, this whole feature just adds a ton of attack surface in general. Uh, the other thing I want to bring up is they use this first bug, that watermark file, as how they exfil. So they write a external command that will write to the watermark file, which they can then download. It feels a little bit weird to be calling, like, I get why the watermark, like, why uploading that without actually having a file can maybe be a bug. But like there should be like even a static file directory in this application that they could also write to to have their output visible. It doesn't feel like that should be necessary. Maybe it is, but I would have liked them to actually indicate why they need to go that route versus something more obvious, like just writing a file into the web route. Oh, yeah, so I, the lack there was just stands out as a little bit weird to me. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I found that first issue and how they used it really interesting personally. Um, not only was it used as a medium for getting the output from commands ran, as you mentioned, they also used it to store commands to execute. Um, so they'll run a command that'll copy the watermark file into a batch file, execute the batch file, and then pipe the output back to the watermark, and then they delete the batch file. So um, near the bottom of the post, they actually have a nice little diagram that shows the the kind of exploit flow. Um there was also a bonus section where they, uh, what they used to confirm exploitation of the previous issue. They had a remote file system enumeration through the global settings folder menu for selecting a root folder for the printer. Um, this doesn't really seem to be a bug. I think it's just more of an, an intended feature that's being abused, um, which is probably why I don't think a CVE was issued for this bonus issue or the first, uh, the watermark thing. Um, because they put out a fix for the directory traversal and insufficient configuration validation. Um, they probably should check the contents with the first issue to make sure that the watermark is actually like an image or a valid uh, valid file contents and not just whatever you want in there. Um, I guess they, they just don't really care enough. So what they should do is add authentication as default. Th that should be the fix here, not running everything without authentication. So authentication is a feature. Um, that is something I went and actually looked at this application just to go see, like, are they hiding authentication behind a, like, paywall like we've seen some other products do? And no, like, it is part of the default. It's just by, de or it is part of the default install, but it's not enabled by default. Um, so <sighs> this kind of comes back to that issue I've hit on before is security shouldn't, you should be secure by default. It shouldn't be something you need to add on. So they say, oh, they don't include authentication enabled by default because they want to be as convenient as possible. Just let them enter a username and password on first access. I'm sure that could be abuse like we talked about with the Ubuntu issue before where they happen to find like some edge case and issue there. But generally speaking, if they just did that, it's not going to be all that difficult to use on that first setup and the security is going to be there by default. And secure defaults coming in clutch again. 
Um, so the vulnerabilities themselves here, I don't think were super interesting. Uh, I did kind of like how they were chained together, though, uh, especially, like I said, with that first issue. Because um, it seems like a, a, an issue that's not very useful at first and doesn't really have any impact. Um, but it, it does come into play later on. Um, like you said, though, I, I do wish there was a little bit more information on why they went that route and not uh, an easier route. But yeah, obviously, we can wish all we want, but we, they're probably not going to update the blog post just because of that. All right. So Whitcoat put out a, a site-wide CSRF on uh, Glassdoor. So Glassdoor, for those of you who haven't ever used it, uh, it's a site that's commonly used for job searching. Um, not only does it have job search and listing capability for employers, it also has salaries and uh, reviews for, for different companies that you can leave and positions. I've used it a few times for that, actually, uh, getting some information on uh, salary information for a particular position at a company. Um, the issue here is how they do validation of CSERF tokens. It's they do try to prevent CSERF on all their endpoints. Uh, it just the, the tokens weren't sufficiently validated. Um, the problem was if you passed a token that followed the expected format, but you didn't give it the number of characters it expected, um, because of a logic issue, it would treat the token as if it were valid, even if it wasn't. Um, and this token would be accepted for both job seekers and employers. So it hit both sides of that. Um, yeah, um, I do want to touch on that a little bit there. Uh, with the check, what happened is an unhandled uh, unhandled exception would come up. So it would first check the token to see, is this of the valid form? Uh, these tokens, uh, for those of you watching, can see that there's kind of these three sections there uh, separated by colons. I'm trying to highlight that on stream there. You can kind of see the different sections going in there. Just look for the colons. But three sections separated by colons. We don't know what exactly those are stating, but it's three pieces of information. So it would validate that, hey, does it have three pieces of information in it or the two colons? Yes, it does. So then it would go on to the second one, uh, actually trying to validate whether like the session that this token is supposed to be attached to. And when it didn't have enough characters for that, that's where you get this unhandled exception coming on. And because it's unhandled, it just kind of carried on without actually dealing with it and that's where it just got treated as a success even though it wasn't actually validated due to that early return yeah so they were awarded a three thousand uh, dollar bounty which is the max bounty for glassdoor um that makes sense because this was an issue that was site-wide uh the fact that it could be used to hit employers too is is pretty impactful um in terms of the attack this is probably the most interesting csurf for me that we've covered I don't think we've covered a CSERF that's occurred to do like bad exception handling or something that like, uh, I guess low level. This one, yeah, this one's kind of interesting. I like kind of the way they found this really ended up being kind of accidental. Uh, they provide the example at the top of one of the tokens. Um, but when they went to copy it for one of the other tokens, it started with an underscore. Uh, so when they copied it, now if you like double click for some copies, it might grab the colon, might not, but underscore is sometimes in some applications, it's just not going to get copied. It's going to stop there. I think Sublime does that. I don't remember if it's Sublime. I know there's one app that does that because I've had issues copying constants on it, uh, but in, or even just overlooking it, but they just dropped one character from the token. And when they tried that on another account, suddenly it just worked. Um, when they were expecting it to fail. So just kind of that accidental discovery of a really somewhat subtle issue, because again, this does work with the normal case. 
yeah, it's this is kind of an interesting bug class that we we don't really see often. So I think this was kind of a cool uh, shakeup. Obviously, the sea surf we see lots of sea surfs, but I mean like the uh, unhandled exception. Those those are fun to see. I like those those more subtle logic bugs. Yeah, we often have cases where it's like you know there's sea surf. There's either it it has no protection whatsoever or. Um, you know, it's not protecting some endpoint that they were able to abuse. Whereas in this case, it's, it has protection. It's just uh, improper validation. So yeah, it, it is kind of a more unique case. So visiting an old friend, GitLab, we have a stored XSS that was reported on HackerOne. Um, this is an issue in the error message display for validation of build dependencies, which is used for continuous integration. Um, this one, unlike the last issue, is a little bit more boring. Um, it, it's a straight-up XSS. Uh, you can just inject HTML into an invalid uh, YAML file, like an invalid configuration in a YAML file to trigger the error. Um, and those details are stored in the details of the job in the dashboard. Um, so this issue is only present in self-hosted installations of GitLab. It doesn't affect GitLab.com because they disable dependency validation. Um, still, though, this was treated as a high-impact issue. Uh, he got a, a $3,000 bounty. Um, I will say I'm surprised it was rated as a high-impact issue. Not only does this only affect self-hosted instances, um, you would need a high level of access to perform this attack. You would need the ability to control YAML files that are used for continuous integration in the repo. Now, I do. I think that it's still an mean issue. You have access, though, to the repo, which isn't that big of an ask, especially if you're running a GitLab instance. You probably have people who have access to the repos that are run on it. So it's not that, like, that is kind of a core, that level of access is a core part of what GitLab is used for. So I think that kind of raises the, or sorry, lowers the bar of getting that level of access. And it's just some, like, it's a straightforward access that just shouldn't be there, regardless of the level of privileges. But it is kind of a standard level of privilege, I think, for a GitLab user to have access to edit a file inside of a repo. For sure, um, it is absolutely an issue. Um... Because it, it can allow you to perform actions on behalf of the owner if you use this to hit them. Yeah, depending on who views it. Um, yeah. It is, in a sense, like you are, you're compromising users of a repo that you yourself are a user of and have access to. So there is that limitation on, like it is a bit of a high ask, but it is a very straightforward issue. So the fix was a little bit slow compared to uh, what I've what we've seen in the past from GitLab. Uh, this issue was reported in August and it was fixed in the beginning of November. So um, a little bit of a slow turnaround time. Um, that being said, part of the reason for that might have been that uh, key fact that it didn't affect GitLab.com. If it did, this probably would have been fixed a lot quicker. But um, I, I just found that interesting because GitLab is usually uh, pretty quick on their turnarounds from what I remember from like past issues we've covered with them. So uh, I, I found it a bit interesting. This one is, was a bit slower, but yeah, I think those RCs we've talked about before um, we had the chain of three, I think in one episode were handled reasonably quickly. So it, yeah, I, I think you're right with the comment that because it didn't impact the actual primary GitLab website, that's probably where they let it slide a little bit or deep right prioritize it especially over the summer where more people are taking time off and not really wanting to get back into it although still a bit long mm -hmm. so we have playstation stuff again 
We have a PlayStation Now uh, app remote code execution through Electron. So PlayStation Now is a cloud gaming subscription service for those of you who aren't uh, uh, MLG gamers out there. Um, but some of you who really love like PS2 games and PS3 games might be familiar with it because it allowed you to play those types of games on like PS4, for example, if it was uh, provided by the service. Um, this involves three issues that are chained together. Uh, though these issues seem to affect the PC client specifically, it might affect the PS4 client, but I'm not totally sure on that. Um, so the first issue is the WebSocket server doesn't check the origin of incoming requests, and that's because WebSockets are not bound by same origin policy, which actually I, I didn't know, um, which is probably why this is an issue. The devs probably didn't know that either. Um, the second issue is that you can tell the Electron application uh, named AGL. I, I don't know if... I don't think they ever specify what AGL stands for, but I might be wrong. Might have missed it. But um, basically, they use that application, and it can load any website or application through the set URL default browser command. Um, and the third issue is that AGL application has node integration set to true instead of false. And if you've listened to our podcast in the last few episodes, specifically episode 49, or if you do AppSec when it comes to electron-based applications, you'll know why this is a bad thing. Uh, you can invoke native uh, Node.js functions with JavaScript code, which can allow you to do things like file system writes and system command execution. The list goes on. That you're kind of, you kind of have like Turing complete capability at that point. Um, well, you, you have yeah complete code execution at that point with access like to everything inside of the Node environment. Yeah. So this is especially problematic uh, because of that second issue. You can make it load any website, so you don't even need like an XSS or anything to exploit this uh, this issue. So on on their own, these are some pretty serious issues. Chained together, it's pretty catastrophic security wise, which is probably why this chain ended up getting a nine point six critical rating. Um, they also noted the application listened on zero point zero point zero point zero instead of localhost, so it's not isolated to the local network. Uh, anyone acts with access to that port. Um, in theory, can send commands to it. So it seems like there's uh, there's quite a few security failures. That yeah, I mean, here. on like a standard user machine, it's probably going to be running this. The router probably isn't going to let through just the random request on, uh, what port was that? 1235? Yeah. Uh, probably isn't going to land. So like there is some protection there. Still should be listening on localhost, not, not quad zero, but. It, it, the, the impact there is a little bit limited because most users aren't exposing their entire computer and everything running yet um, to the internet. Taking a question out of chat from uh, Balika, does Electron even work on PS4? I'm not totally certain. It could be the case that they bundle Electron with the application and like a like a compiled form or something. I don't. I've never looked at PlayStation now uh, in terms of like the PlayStation application. So that could be fun to look at. Maybe this could be used on PS4, but I I kind of have my doubts. Yeah, I, I would have some significant doubts on having any sort of ready Electron interface. I mean, I guess they could run it as just, run it as a like a website without any of the Chrome around it um, as a possibility. I assume you can still run the Electron or like the the web the underlying web applications but having the electron access yeah i don't think so yeah i can't imagine 
So this did lead to a pretty awesome bounty payout. They ended up getting $15,000 for this uh, report. Overall, probably the most impactful attack we've seen in a while. This was uh, these were some good some good finds. All right, yeah, so I mean, there's definitely an impact there. I'm not sure how wide the use of PlayStation Now, like the desktop application, really was. Especially the desktop application, that is a fair point. Because uh, a lot of people use this to play like PS2 and PS3 games on PS4. I, I haven't heard of anyone actually who uses it on the PC. Um, that being said, I imagine there are some users out there, but it's probably not a, a super big user base. So yeah, that, that's a good stipulation to throw on the end there. So it seems there was a bit of a funny story around uh, Microsoft Teams RCE. Um, so there was a report sent to Microsoft about uh, Microsoft Teams, which included multiple, uh, R well, an RCE involving multiple bugs. Um, I believe it was a stored XSS, which could allow you to bypass AngularJS expression injection and well, so, uh, escape the sandboxing. So the cross-site scripting itself uh, was just in the message, basically your display name, or in the little message, it would send a JSON object that included information like your display name. The display name itself, you could include Angular um, templates within it, or expressions within it. Um, it did do some scanning for Angular expressions, so you, you're not supposed to be able to inject anything like that. Um, but including a unicode null bytes that would be a double null byte um that will bypass check just including the backslash u and four zeros is enough to get around the expression filtering voting is hard so yeah that allows the stored xss and then um so it seems microsoft really missed on this issue when it came to like triaging and and looking at the report, uh, they rated the issue as important spoofing, which they note is one of the lowest ratings that they'll uh, give that's still in scope. So the issues were fixed uh, at the end of October, uh, but they didn't issue any CVEs. And it seems like there was a fundamental disagreement on the impact of these issues for some weird reason. I'm not sure how you'd rate a stored XSS as spoofing. So um, I, I can explain that a little bit. Um, okay. The the cross-site scripting, in order to get RCE, what they do is they take advantage. So there is the RCE that they do would happen even if like node integration was off, um, if there's isolation, all of that. Because what they do is they take advantage of the team's IPC. So it exposes the safe IPC call, um, electron safe IPC, and then you can send different commands. So one of the sends they one of the commands they send is the desktop file download to download any file. And then on success with that, they pull some information and then do another one, which is allow window open URL, open just any website. So they're just abusing the actual team's IPC. So they're basically, what Microsoft is kind of doing here is saying it's not a bug, it's a feature. Uh, the aspect of RC. So at that point, it's just being able to kind of craft these custom spoofed messages and not the RC aspect. So I think that's where Microsoft's coming down on it. Um, and then they don't file the CV for it because it's, an automatically updated product it's you know hosted by them so you don't have any other companies that are going to be like hosting the uh this particular team's server and who need to track the vulnerability so i can kind of see the argument on that um 
as a web service, nobody else is running it. Like nobody needs to track vulnerabilities, which is kind of what CVEs are for. I was going to say, this kind of opens up an interesting question of what should CVEs be for? Should they be strictly for tracking issues to allow vendors uh, to notify customers or whatever to update? Or should they also be like a trophy system for security researchers, which is that, which is what they're treated as. Like, let's be honest, CVEs are mostly a trophy system. I think they're used for that more than they're actually used for, uh, you know, advisories. So in that context, it seems like they kind of got robbed of something like CVEs are good for like putting on like resumes and stuff like that, for example. Right. So it's, I could understand why they'd be upset for getting robbed from a CVE, but it seems like Microsoft is kind of taking that stance of CVE shouldn't be trophies. They should strictly be advisories. I mean, um, that's the intent of CVE, though, is for uh, the defensive side to be able to quickly scan and reference, you know, what vulnerabilities do exist and are known about. Um, and that's definitely how they're used on the blue team. I mean, yeah, sure. On the offensive side, you can kind of use them like a trophy case, as you're saying. But um, that doesn't negate the fact that they are actually used and like usefully used on the blue side for defensive purposes and doing that sort of scanning. So do you think the authors here are, are, are kind of like blowing it out of proportion a little bit? Thinking no, that, I think, you Microsoft, think like Microsoft I is... think the problem with Microsoft here is the fact they did rate it as informational or not information important in spoofing. Um, there is RCE. I don't really care about the fact that it's only um, like I, I did just go and kind of explain how it's through their safe IPC and it's kind of a feature, but that doesn't really change the fact that it's still remote code execution because of the earlier vulnerability. Um, so I do think it's Microsoft downplaying it. I don't think they're, I don't think the author's in the wrong here. I mean, they just make the comment about the CV. They don't put much emphasis on the CV aspect. And I think that's fair. I mean, if you want to put on your resume, you can put the write-up on here too. Um, or even the Microsoft. Uh, I think they have a... Well, they did publish something because they gave it the um, the important spoofing rating. So, like, there is something to reference. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying there. It, it, what Microsoft is saying there doesn't... It's not really relevant to the impact of the issue, so... It's relevant to the technical details, maybe, but not to the impact. So, all right, fair enough. So we have an essay that was published by Ian Beer from Project Zero. And I say essay because this blog post is about 30,200 words. That is not hyperbole. That is a legitimate count. I put it in a word counter. Now, that does probably include some, like, code snippets and stuff, but um, it's very long. <laughs> So this post delves into a remotely exploitable heap overflow vulnerability, as well as all the ways that he attempted to exploit it and how he eventually did end up exploiting it. Um, it leads off with a video that some of you might have seen circulating on social media. It's a video of a bunch of iPhones sitting on the ground, and uh, within a couple seconds, they all get crashed um, due to this exploit. But it's not just a remote denial of service, as the video might imply. He managed to take this to code execution. So he starts off the post with initial research and finding of this vulnerability back when, and how he found it was uh, the iOS kernel symbols were leaked in the iOS 12 beta one build. I can't remember. I feel like we did touch on it briefly on the podcast. I don't think we had a long discussion, but I think we might've mentioned. No, it. we've, we've mentioned the fact that um, 
we brought it up actually in response to another iOS vulnerability that I think took advantage of. And we, we've kind of talked about it as, as a side topic. Yeah. Uh, so Apple had just forgot to strip out the symbols when they shipped the beta build. So that gave a extremely useful tool for researchers because symbols usually aren't public. Um, and he ended up finding a, a function for parsing ADWL trees. At the time, he didn't know what that stood for, but uh, he now knows it stands for Apple Wireless Direct Link. Uh, or actually, or I guess it would be Apple Direct Wireless Link, since it's ADWL. Um, and it, it's used for networking with app, other Apple devices, like Apple TV and stuff like that. And um, he found this function took a user-provided size and buffer and did some memory operations on it, uh, such as a memmove. Um, and what was really odd was the fact that it had a bounds check, but the bounds check didn't really seem to do anything when it came to control flow. Um, it prints out a path length error to the log, but then it just continues as usual. It doesn't take any different code flow to, you know, fix the the fix up the numbers so that they fall in bounds or anything like that. So it's a logic bug that led to heap overflow through the men move. Yeah, um, and I thought this was kind of a really interesting pattern too, just because it is it shows like somebody recognizes that there is the path length there. So what it's doing there, actually, if you're watching on stream, you can kind of see it doing the if some u16 equals v6 like basically calculates what the max size is and checks if it's equal to the max size seems a little bit weird when he does a bit more reverse engineering on the code and rewrites it a little bit it does make a little bit more sense what it's doing um because it does seem a little bit weird how it does like this um if the two values are equal like if some u16 equals v6 what does it do if that condition's true it sets some u16 equal to v6 basically does nothing and then there's the else condition showing the length but as an interesting pattern just because it shows there's somebody recognized there's the error um i don't know if maybe they had planned to make that a log fatal and then just kind of forgot and had as debug while they were testing something or what happened there uh, but yeah the fact that it really does nothing after noticing the error um is kind of what makes this issue or basically what happened here is it just carries on so i'm gonna go into some very wild speculation here i could be very wrong but i'm gonna i'm gonna have some fun with it i'm gonna say maybe on like a debug build or something this did do something uh useful like maybe there's a macro or like something if deft where it did do like a fatal assertion or something if this path was taken or if that uh like that log debug function might have something that just got if deft out in release builds. I, mean, I can totally usually, see that being the case. Usually a log debug, though, like that's just a debugging level. Usually like the debug just isn't going to do very much. It's one of the lowest levels you can have for that. Um, and thank you, Mr. Gate, for the sub. Seven months. Crazy. Thank you. Um, so yeah, this was actually such a simple bug that he initially didn't think it was real. Uh, you know, it's typically, in my experience, bugs this shallow and real attack surface don't tend to work out. Because usually there's a check that are that's like many levels up, or there's something that's really easy to miss, especially when you're doing black box or like binary uh, bone research. So he ended up testing it, and it, it was straight up just a, a bug that he was able to abuse. Now, even though the bug itself was kind of simple, the exploit was about the farthest thing from simple. Um, yeah, and he went I, through a lot of the strategies he attempted. I do want to comment really quickly that they did also, 
while it was a fairly straightforward bug, there was a check earlier on that basically made sure it wasn't going beyond 1024. So that did limit how much of an override he was able to get. Um, and I guess since we haven't, we've only kind of said like to use a mem move, basically this size uh, was used in a mem move. So you're getting a heap over, a heap based overflow with it. Um, you're able to override into the next blocks. Yeah. Um, so he went through a lot of the strategies he attempted that didn't really work out after getting more background on uh, on ADWL. Um, he, he was trying to find objects that he could smash with that heap overflow to get useful primitives. After a while, he managed to get a read primitive by smashing the steering message blob, which is used for BSS steering. Um, though that read primitive he got was really limited. Uh, I thought this the scenario that he had here was actually really interesting because I'd never seen it before. Um, the size of what was read was actually bound to the data of where you controlled the pointer um, because it, it read the size from the second D word of the pointer you smash. So in a way, if you were kind of restricted on that read, if you read something where there was a really high value as that second D word, you were kind of screwed. You just couldn't read that memory. Um, the reading was also kind of slow, although it... Uh, Z, I think you were saying you could kind of influence it, right? By based on how you exploited it. Yeah, it could be slow. Um, it depended. Uh, he mentioned actually, he kind of touched some way and gets into speeding up his exploit. That, um, the technique he started with, it could take like up to ten seconds, uh, to actually get a read. Yeah. Um, so he did eventually manage to uh, get an arbitrary add primitive as well by smashing a peer manager. So he could increment the value at any address by corrupting a pointer to an object which has a counter for the number of bytes received from peers. And I believe by combining these primitives together, uh, he managed to eventually get arbitrary read-write. Now, it, it's not quite that simple. Uh, he had a lot of barriers to work through. For example, I think one issue we had was the write would trigger a panic because of the object being used in other places, and he had to figure out how to work around that. Um, I didn't read through all of the ins and outs because, like I said, this, this is a very long blog post. It would take me a while to, to get through all of it. Um, what was also interesting, though, the, there was a few other accidental zero days that were discovered um, that were touched on but weren't really talked about in the context of exploitation in this blog post. Um, there was a double free in the same subsystem, which was mentioned earlier this year on Twitter by Mark Dowd in May. Um, now, the issue and the exploit themselves are certainly interesting, and I think uh, anybody who likes security research should try to give this at least a cursory reading. If not, uh, if you find it more interesting, you can do it like a, do a full reading. Um, what I found most interesting personally, though, since I don't really do iOS stuff, is some of the background insights that Ian Beer talks about particularly when it comes to attack versus defense in the exploit space. Um, so like a few of the quotes he mentions is like the ratio of security engineers to developers might be one to 20 or one to 40 or even higher. Um, I think people really underestimate how big some of the attacking teams can be in relation to the defending teams. Um, defense really has like a, a massive disadvantage when it comes to uh, security. Um, and to tackle this insurmountable challenge, he says security teams might place heavy emphasis on design level reviews, um, mitigations, as well as fuzzing to try to catch up there. Yeah, I'm. what I kind of took away from this goes in a little bit of a different direction. It's on the exploit strategy aspect. Um, rather than the background, I did find his analysis of basically just 
covering his strategy to be somewhat interesting here. Um, and I think it's important to note how much time he did end up spending on this and the dead ends that he did go down. Because it's so easy when you look at a lot of write-ups, and I've mentioned this many times, um, it's so easy to get the idea that they just know everything that they need to do right away. That's just like, oh yeah, I've got this, therefore I'm doing this and this and this, and there's my exploit. And yeah, that, that is sometimes the case. But it's also the case that's like, you know these rough ideas, and he covers kind of his four options for, I've got an overflow now. You know, here are the kind of the four ways or four approaches that I can exploit being you know, overriding another another peer, uh, forcing another object to be next to it, coercing it to be at the end of the actual, um, at the end of a segment. Like, he covers these different options there, or even just exploiting the other fields in the, in the tree that he was overriding. Kind of covers those, and it's like, you know that much, and now it's like, where do you go from there? And that's one of the big differences between when you're learning about exploit dev, Oftentimes you're doing these CTF size challenges where there is only really one strategy or one possible way you can go. And in the real world, you've just got these more complex applications where you can do anything you want, but it might not work out. Uh, so kind of just seeing the approach there, I think kind of makes this a really valuable write-off to see that approach on something that is reasonably hardened, like iOS. It's not an easy target. It's not a straightforward, just overwrite overwrite you know some function pointer and he actually talks about why some of the issues with overwriting some pointers talking about pack and some of the options to uh bypass that so i mean my big takeaway of this one was a lot more related to just that strategy and i think there's a lot of benefit for people to kind of see all the effort that goes into coming up with the next flight strategy because like i said with ctfs you usually only have one but in the real world You've got to be thinking about everything you've got and how do you start leveraging it to get more. Uh, touching on that point you mentioned about how long this took him, I believe he mentioned this took six months all in all, uh, research, uh, finding the vulnerability and uh, exploiting it. And Ian Beers is probably like one of the best people when it comes to exploit development. So that just kind of highlights how difficult of a target iOS really is. Um, now, I did want to touch back a little bit on some of the insights that he offered, particularly when it came to fuzzing. Um, there's a quote here, I think, that's like really insightful that people should probably give a read or, or listen to. And it's, fuzzing is often misunderstood as an effective method to discover easy-to-find vulnerabilities or low-hanging fruit. A more precise description would be that fuzzing is an effective method to discover easy-to-fuzz uh, easy vulnerabilities. Plenty of vulnerabilities which a skilled researcher would consider low-hanging fruit can require researching a program to the point where no fuzzer today would be able to reach it, no matter how many resources are used. I think that is a really interesting distinction and one I hadn't really thought of before. There was definitely a point in time, like especially like two years ago maybe, where I thought the same like opinion that he's criticizing here. It, fuzzing will just find low-hanging fruit. But there's a lot more nuance to it than that. Uh, it's not that cut and dry. Um, and I thought that was kind of an interesting, like, PSA-type quote uh, when it came to fuzzing, so. I mean, I don't think he's wrong about fuzzing finds issues that are easy to find with fuzzing. Um, and as fuzzers advance, like, they do find deeper and deeper issues. There has been huge improvement on getting more code coverage, and and we've talked before about, you know, how to actually judge a fuzzer and some of the options around that. 
but he's not wrong in terms of like buzzing doesn't find all of the low-hanging fruit there are things that a researcher can find and that's why i always think like fuzzing is augmenting the research it's not replacing the manual research it's there to augment some of the work you know you run the fuzzer you do your manual assessment you don't just run the fuzzer um it's there it it can help. It can show you areas if you're getting a lot of crashes. It gives you an area that you as a researcher can then go look at. Um, it's not there to just replace it, but it does find. Um, I mentioned before the idea of the unreasonable effectiveness of fuzzers to just find a lot of those bugs. Um, but he's not wrong. Like it only finds a certain type of bug that can be fuzzed. There's definitely lots of logic issues that just don't get picked up. So there was a final point I wanted to mention on the technical aspect when it came to PAC. Uh, this is a good post to demonstrate that PAC is not the, you know, saving grace and iOS exploitation is just not possible because of it. Uh, for those not popular, uh, familiar with the terminology, PAC is pointer authentication code. So basically pointers get encrypted in a sense with a tag. Um, and then when those pointers are followed, the, the tag is checked internally by the CPU. And if it's not, if it doesn't match, then it will, it will like crash the device or whatever. Um, what this post shows is arbitrary read write is, is still a very like powerful primitive that is not going to get mitigated by pack. And that's exactly why he just stopped there. You don't need code execution as much as some people might think you need direct code execution. Um, and, and this post kind of shows that off. Now, while this post is really long, like I mentioned earlier, I think it's very accessible um, relative to iOS stuff. iOS stuff is really hard to get into. And um, this post is really accessible, and it has a lot of really nice diagrams I found. Um, some, like, exploit write-ups you look up, they, they either don't have diagrams, or the diagrams are kind of, like, really convoluted and hard to follow. I think the diagrams here really offered a lot of value. And... Um, I think even if you're not like a, you know, expert exploit developer or whatever, you can still take something away from this blog post. Yeah, there's a ton of information here. Like I said, I think even one easy takeaway that I think anybody can get from it is that look at the exploit strategy and frankly, how frustrating it can be at times when you don't know where to go. I will say I did pull it up briefly, but the original report is also, if you're just interested in what the bug was, is a bit more clear and a little bit more well a lot more concise in terms of what the actual issue is um so i do that'll be in the description for everybody who wants to take a look at that but if you're just interested in what the bug was and not the exploitation aspect then i think that's a better place to look somebody's looking for a fun exercise out there to get into some like ios exploitation or something uh take a look at the double free see if you can exploit that because that might be more trivial to exploit than this bug was. So it might be uh, like a lower barrier to entry. And it, it could be a fun write-up you could do. So on another episode of two-year-old issues that just got disclosed, we have an integer overflow yielding heap-based buffer overflow in curl. Uh, so the, the set URL function, which is used internally on a user passed URL, allocates a scratch buffer for the path for parsing the URL. And to do this, it has to take the length of it and it multiplies it by two and then adds two for some weird reason and then passes that to allocate the buffer into malloc. Um, now, there's a pretty blatant integer overflow here. If you pass a string that's large enough, that multiplication or bit uh, shift 
will overflow and wrap around since the malloc takes an unsigned size. Now, when the original length is used for validation, it's broken because the, the overflow breaks any assumptions made by the code for the buffer length. Um, it wasn't made clear if this could be exploited for more than just a DOS. Um, the impact section of the report notes it might lead to a crash or some other impact. Um, and it's also worth noting this would only be exploitable on 32-bit architectures. 64-bit, um, uh, malloc takes an unsigned long, and you would need an unreasonable strength length, uh, string length to be able to overflow a 64-bit size. Um, that that's that's not a reasonable ask. So. I wanted to do some speculation on whether or not we think this could be exploitable. And I'm going to come down on no. I don't think this could really be used for anything other than a DOS. Um, when it comes to justifications, for one thing, it's a parser issue. ASLR would make this issue uh, probably impossible to exploit without another bug. For two, you need a really long string to trigger the overflow, and you can't control the length beyond just the length of the string. So you'll probably just smash the heap to a state of no repair. And even if you could exploit this for code execution, um, it's it's not really practical. Um, this seems like more of a self-exploit, unless for some reason you're using curl in an application and allowing users to pass arbitrary URLs to curl. Um, Which isn't, like, curl does get used quite a bit. Uh, I mean, it's the basis for, like, a lot of uh, PHP code will use curl. Uh, so there's a lot of cases where you might be able to gain control over the URL length. I agree with you that being in the heap, there isn't a really clear direct exploit for it, um, but you kind of have to look into it a bit more. You have to take the time to actually see what is on the heap, what's there. It can appear to be a self-dos, but because curl is such a widely used application, like it definitely could be used in a way that might be exploitable. Um, but yeah, they don't cover any sort of exploit. Like this is just made as a report to the bug bounty. Um, and they got a $150 bounty from it, uh, just reporting, you know, hey, there's this heap overflow there. Actually, explaining it would be more difficult. Like I said, it is I've had the parser level, which also creates some difficulty. Um, it would be difficult to exploit. I don't know. I wouldn't be willing to say, like, it's not exploitable without having more time to look at how curl works and what's actually sitting on the heap. Let's say for the sake of argument, though, you just you had to pick one. You you couldn't say I want more time to look. You had to say yes or no. Would you come down on no? Or more likely to be no? It's a good question. I I just don't know what to say because <laughs> I don't know what what information you might be able to abuse that's on the heap. Um, although I guess probably no, given the two gigabyte read that it's going to have to do the exactly if it's that's what i think is a killer i think that would kill any exploitability you are doing such a huge smashing of the heap you're going to smash so many things along the way and you might even like how big is heap actually on 32-bit well i mean that it varies depending on how much room you actually need so it is calling malloc so it should get the space given to it I'm just thinking you might even just run into unmapped memory and just you would be guaranteed a crash, in which case it would this would absolutely not be exploitable. But yeah, well, that's I guess totally one thing. I guess when I say it should be given the memory, like in this exploit, because you're going to be calling it. Uh, what is it? 
Like, you get the int overflow there, so you can get it to call with something smaller, I think. Um, and then write larger. You would have to find a way to terminate that write, probably, which might be, like, hard or impossible, but... Yeah, that's yeah. going to depend on some of the internals. It's fun to think about. Um, I, I don't think we can... Like you said, though, we can't come down hard on no, because we don't have all the technical uh, details and all the internal state information, but... I would probably lean to no. We can come down saying, you know, lean no. Um, yeah. it, it's always true, though. Like, there's always a chance that somebody just is going to be a little bit more creative in how they take advantage of it and find something. Um, and out of uh, chat, Mr. Gabe mentions, you know, old parses are a good attack vector. And they are, like, especially when you're starting to learn stuff. Like, you know, there are a lot of parser bugs, but with ASLR now in place on most systems and depth, you're kind of limited when it comes to those parser bugs. They do become a lot harder to exploit, but when you're learning, they're great. Uh, so you don't have to deal with like ASLR. You can do quite a bit with them and they're usually fun and straightforward. So it gets kind of weird when we look at the meta of this report, um, because usually you'll see if an issue is like two years old or whatever gets disclosed. It's at the request of the researcher and the vendor drags their heels or whatever um in this case it was at the request of the curl staff member um two, like two years later the curl staff member just decided oh um let's let's make this report public like it's just it's it seems weird to me yeah i thought it was weird and there were actually two other curl issues report or that got disclosed around the same time and i went and looked at them and they were not two years old so it wasn't like they just suddenly like oh well let's get rid of the backlog so I'm not sure why. I did think this one was a little bit weird, too. We can't really speculate on why. Because, yeah, this was even paid out two years ago. I did find that kind of interesting, but we have no, no way to really know why that was. It's possible they just noticed that it was missed while they were publishing other ones, and they were like, oh, let's just throw this one in, too. Perhaps, probably yeah. probably more boring than what we're thinking. Yeah, I mean, well, I don't think there's like some dramatic story about like this <laughs> no. internal war wage within uh within curl or the internet bug bounty about whether or not to disclose this issue. Uh, Mr. Um, Gaten chat said uh, maybe the person contacted them or requested disclosure. Oh, by email, not maybe. Um, but at that point, you might as well just use the Hacker One report you already have that communication channel with. Like, normally you don't vary up your communication channel if you already have one established. Yeah, like asking for the disclosures built right into Hacker One. So it, it would seem weird if they went. It is possible. Um, it's possible they send snail mail too, but I'm not sure how likely that is. I mean, it's possible. Yeah, look at that there. So our last exploit is uh, Google Duo, uh, race condition ca causing a colleague to leak video packets from an unanswered call. So Z, I'll let you take this one over because uh, I think you, you have a better grasp on this one than I do. Yes, yeah, so this one was just a race condition. All that happens is when you have that WebRTC call started, um, ideally it shouldn't be sending any sort of video packets or anything until you've actually accepted that call. Uh, but the way it does this is kind of the connection starts, it sets the locale description, and then it, um, in the, once that's happened in the success handler, it'll disable all of your, 
uh, video codecs, I believe. Basically, it disables all of the outgoing traffic, so you can't send any videos. But that happens normally. That happens really quickly. It's you set the you set the one value, and really quickly it gets into the success handler and runs the um, runs the uh, disablement, the code that disables it. However, because it happens in that response in the onset on success handler, if you could delay that from running, so if you could delay it by having a lot of spam messages coming through, because it's happening on a separate thread, uh, you can basically delay the disabling of outgoing traffic uh, long enough to actually start getting some video being sent out, despite the fact that the call hasn't actually been answered yet, uh, which is essentially where the race condition comes from. You're able to slow that down. You're able to get more information sent out. I feel like I've seen an issue like this that was kind of similar from like a year or two back. Yeah, well, I like, think we covered WhatsApp. Um, I was going to say, a, I feel like it was a Facebook thing or like a like a Facebook application. Yeah, I thought so, it was a WhatsApp that we had another similar sort of. It, I don't think it was a race condition like this one exactly. But it was that same issue where it wasn't, it kept, it was sending things before you actually answered the call. If I remember correctly, the reason that one really blew up was uh, it was actually being exploited in the wild. Um, this one, I, I don't think they say anything to that effect. I don't think they have any evidence this was being exploited. Because um, if it was, I think it would have been subject to the seven day disclosure, not the 90 day. But um, yeah, I mean, this really like set bells off in my head, like remember uh, remembering that WhatsApp issue, um, which I yeah definitely I very didn't have familiar. when I initially read it. Yeah. All right, so we'll move into research. So we have a blog post from Alexander Popov um, about a Linux kernel heap quarantine qu quarantining technique he POC'd, especially with the world how it is right now. You think I'd be able to pronounce quarantine um, in an effort to mitigate use after freeze in the Linux kernel? So. Basically, how this works is when an object gets freed, it doesn't get immediately released uh, into the queue to be reallocated. Instead, it's put in a quarantine, um, and then the freed addresses in that quarantine aren't released until it reaches a size that's too large, and then it releases them all. Um, now, that does raise the question, what if an attacker just floods the quarantine to get the pointer released to spray it? Um, and while that's not fully mitigated, this solution does include another strategy, which is combining the init on free capability to zero memory when it enters the quarantine. So while the strategy could certainly be countered and actually is by Jan Horn in here, um, it could still hold values of mitigation if the performance is good. Spoiler, it's not. Um, so I will it... also mention that he does actually take a little bit more step there by randomizing when things can get released. Um, so he batches everything that goes into the quarantine. And then once the things get too large and or when it's going to scale back the quarantine, it'll release half of an entire batch at random. So that means you can have some that kind of sits in there for a very long time um, and isn't consistently able to be uh, released from quarantine. Because uh, this first example here, it's always coming out after like 182,000 requests or like objects going through. Um, and one key thing with this is you do kind of need the allocations and the freeze in order to push things through the quarantine if you're just able to free things. Um, or 
if sorry if you're just able to allocate it never ends up pushing anything out of quarantine it just keeps allocating more new content so you do kind of need to be able to do both actions um and you kind of need to have an infinite spray of sorts in order to actually get anything through if you have an infinite spray and infinite time you're still able to kind of get something through the quarantine uh but it's worth knowing like because of the randomness also it's hard to know when you can stop um he mentions here in one case you know the target object even after four hundred thousand um attempts never got reallocated um but then there are other cases where it came out after like eighty-seven thousand. so like so you've randomized it to try and make it more difficult to know when it's actually going to come out and then he got into the actual erasing them using the init on free so while the strategy could be countered um i think where it could offer value is it would make race-based uafs hard to exploit um anything where there's like a time sensitive nature this is going to really kind of screw you there um and it makes UAF where you're dependent on the stale data impossible to exploit, though that's mostly due to the init on free and less because of the heap quarantining. Um, but still, if you need any of that data intact, uh, you're you're not going to get that with this mitigation in place. That being said, you may remember earlier I said this could hold value as a mitigation if the performance is good, and I said spoiler alert, it's not. Um, the network throughput testing showed 30% less throughput. Uh, 28% of that was uh, in it on free being responsible, 2% from the quarantine. And the scheduler stress test showed a slowdown of up to 97%. Uh, 5.3 being from in it on free and almost 92% being from the quarantine. So there are some massive performance penalties here. Um, he does note that this is not optimized code, it's research code. Um, that being said, performance impacts that are that large, I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's any amount of optimizations you can do in the world to really make that viable. Um, yeah, it I mean, was a, a lot cool of that impact, um, I think, also just came down, like, the init on free, because init on free has a very significant um, performance impact. That's why it's not used by default. Oh. Um, the whole thing, though, uh, one thing that is worth noting is Jen Horn uh, basically reviewed this and from a security perspective, reviewed it and you know, pointed out one of the observations being that the. The quarantine is shared on like the CPU level, which means that somebody could sleep uh, their main attack thread, go on another thread and do all the allocations and deallocations from you know, even if it's another size, uh, because the kernel, the kernel heap is split up into the size, different sized uh, blocks. Uh, but you can sleep on another one and open up another thread that's just going to do all those allocations to push things through the quarantine. Go back to your original one and almost immediately get the uh, object to be allocated. So he basically bypassed it altogether by separating that as long as as an attacker you'd have acts on when the use after free happens um, like when the second use happens and when the free happens you'd be able to exploit it that way by just sleeping for a bit and pushing things through the quarantine somewhere else yeah which so, limits the or which limits sorry the usability of this as an actual mitigation for sure so like you said for those reasons plus the performance reasons um, unfortunately, this doesn't really work out, though I did kind of like the idea and it was a cool experiment. Um, even in the conclusion, he acknowledges that this is not suitable for mainline um, 
There are some suggestions from other people who do Linux kernel work, like Janhorn and Keys Cook, uh, mainly stating that the best way to prevent UAF would be to give objects dedicated caches so that you can't overlap objects of different types. Um, that is like, that would legitimately almost kill UAFs as a bug class, but it's not really practical to do because, I mean, how many different types of objects do you have in the Linux kernel? What are you going to yeah, do? So Create 300,000 caches? Like, well, no. so they talk about doing it at the compiler level, having the compiler be knowledgeable about that, uh, rather than it being done at like just the code level and knowing the types, which is an interesting idea. I'm not... I, I'm not sure how well it would work out, but it is... It's definitely a possibility. Um, I don't think we'll see it anytime soon. No, um, no, I, I don't think so either. But it is an interesting or an interesting suggestion on a mitigation that would be quite impactful. Very likely, though, because that's going to kill any sort of caching and like any cache hits. Oh, uh, like it, it'll have a significant impact on performance. Um, almost certainly. And and for those not like super familiar with uh, Linus, he absolutely hates things that bombard and kill performance for security reasons. He hates it. It's like one of his his like biggest triggers. So <laughs> don't expect it to go through at least to mainline. Um, I I feel like we've seen white papers that have kind of touched on that angle before of uh of setting up those types of caches, and it just never really never really went to fruition because I think the performance hit was just too great. Um, but yeah, it was still a cool experiment, and uh, I, I like the approach, even though it didn't really work out. So our, our final research topic of the day is Alexa. Um, it's about using voice assistants like Alexa to decode smartphone sounds. So this definitely isn't the first time we've covered a paper that's used voice assistants and IoT and stuff like that, um, and how they can be misused for added side channels for getting information. Um, mainly what they focus on in this paper is using the microphones on the assistant devices like Alexa to record and identify virtual keyboard taps. Um, so this can compromise sensitive things, obviously, like passwords, pins, text messages, um, stuff like that. I believe the way this works is it uses an array of microphones to determine the direction of arrival of the sound. Um, and then they use that combined with uh, linear discriminant analysis or CNNs. Um, I think they found LDA had better accuracy, though. Yes, they could basically did. estimate which keys were being tapped uh, without needing to hijack the microphone on the device. Because some of the attacks that have happened before with uh, side-channeling what an, a user was doing on the device involved hijacking the microphone that was directly on the device to pick up the vibrations, um, which was which is a more accurate attack than this. But this yeah, allows you to do it without using the direct microphone. Oh. I think we did, too. I think it was a really early one. Um, cause I don't think we talked, it's, it's definitely been like a year or something since that, uh, we covered that, I think. Yeah. It's so. been a while. I don't recall what episode I just, I do remember talking about that internal mic one. Um, the performance here. So it is also worth noting that this is within half a meter of the smart device and kind of takes advantage of the fact that these smart devices will automatically start recording usually after they hear some sort of keyword and that ends up being sent over to like google will sort or amazon will store that and you can kind of review everything it's recorded from you which the fact that it's stored and kind of associated with the user account like if somebody gains access to 
all of your certs up, they might be able to find a case where you're inputting the code while it's accidentally recording. It's presumably if you're using it, you're not also in the middle of entering like your pin. Um, so it'd probably be accidental. They bring up the threat model of the fact that that information or those recordings are shared for like training purposes and stuff uh, for people to actually write the, or for people to label it. That shouldn't be shared with knowledge of your user account, though, which makes it kind of hard to actually exploit that issue, even if they were able to figure out your pin from the recording. And then when it's stored, that's a fair attack service. I don't know, this does feel like it's interesting to know that these devices could record and you can determine with a degree of accuracy uh, what pins were actually or what uh, values were actually used. That said, it has to be within half a meter, which is pretty close to the device. It's not like just a device in the same room can pick off your taps. You have to be pretty close. Uh, they don't really talk about, or maybe they do and I missed that, um, about how silent the rooms are, but I presume they were keeping their rooms pretty silent. There wasn't any sort of background noise or much background noise. And they got about... 25 to 34 percent accuracy of a four-digit pin with 20 guesses so they weren't accurate right off the bat um and if you only go with uh like the 10 guesses the highest percentage they got to was the 26 percent so not it's not getting a lot of the pins too quickly so just having the recording you're not getting too far with this. It is, like I said, it's interesting. That's why I brought it up. Because it is interesting to know, like, you can do this sort of analysis. But the practicality of this is definitely limited in terms of the results they're showing. But this is just a first attempt at it. You know, somebody with more money to do more training on, either the CNN to put more resources into that might be able to do more. But it does feel like you're always going to be fairly limited. Being a remote microphone, being a very... Uh, well, a silent tap, you're able to get some information, both the relative position of the taps, but you're still pretty limited, especially when they need multiple guesses to actually get the values. Um, that means you're not just going to be able to work from the record and be like, I know your pin, so I can do a really quick attack. It's trying like 20 pins is going to take a bit of effort. Um, most of these phones are also going to be limiting you to you know, maybe five, and then you have to wait however long before you can actually make further attempts. The accuracy problem comes down to the fact that there's a, a lower signal-to-noise ratio, and it gets even lower the further away your target gets. So you might be able to pull off this attack a meter away, but it's just your your accuracy takes a massive hit, and you would need a lot more guesses. Um, what I found interesting, though, was the accuracy was somewhat reasonable when it came to text reconstruction. Uh, they found that text could be reconstructed with a 50% accuracy. I think the reason for that is... With text, you can do further analysis to try to fix it up by using like frequency analysis, like letter distribution, uh, dictionaries for like correcting spelling errors and stuff like that. Yeah, and um, they definitely they made use of the dictionary attacks during this. Um, and yeah, they they can have they can leak some information off that. But again, this is also this threat model is dependent on the accidental recording, which means they're also not going to be that long of a recording. I think they don't usually yeah. record for all that long so a few words a few not sentences yeah 
Um, it's funny though, in this specific case, it's almost like pins are stronger than passwords against this specific type of attack. Oh no, um, th there's research about the sound of pens. That's that's old already. Oh, okay. Well, to me it's new, so you know, whatever. Yeah, no, um, that's that's definitely something that's been looked at. I mean, we haven't covered any of those papers, but the sound of writing is something that can be analyzed also to do this sort of attack with and figure out what somebody is writing. Um there were some other like little interesting things that I found. They were they're not really like relevant to the practicality or anything. Well, actually, this one kind of is. Um, they found that their attack worked better if the i or if the phone or whatever. I think they use an iPhone. Um, if it's in landscape orientation instead of portrait, and the reasoning for that being, uh, when you're in landscape, the keys are further apart, right, and they're bigger uh, than they are in portrait, where they're more like tightly clustered together. I th that was kind of an interesting observation that a. Uh, it, it, it highlights how sensitive this attack is, that something as trivial as that, like most people who are using their device wouldn't even think about the orientation they're using, and they're probably using portrait anyway. But um, it's just funny that something as trivial as that is makes an impact on this type of attack, and that's just the nature of how sensitive it is. But um, yeah, it, it's not really a super practical attack, but... Uh, no, but definitely interesting, like the fact that it could be done. Um, like, I know I've seen papers about, so I remember seeing the internal microphone, but also just about typing. And I mean, that's where you have these tactile keys that make a very distinctive sound and you can kind of train on that. Whereas the touch screen feels like some that it should be a lot harder to get information from, uh, just from the sound of the touch. So I did find that aspect interesting too. One thing with keyboards, though, uh, you would have to normalize for the types of switches, too. Because, like, I, for example, have a green switch keyboard. You could probably hear it from, like, the house next to me. But if you get, you can get, like, quiet switches, too. So it would be interesting to see how you would tackle that, actually, between the different types of switches that are used by keyboards. Well, you can uh, still do noise. that analysis on, like, distance and distance between the different keys uh, that are being uh, typed, rather than just on... This one key is exactly this. Yeah, you just have to have like a different profile for picking up the key presses. Yeah. But yeah, that was kind of a fun thing I was thinking of when you when you brought that up. Um, I will move into shoutouts in a second. I just wanted to pull something out of chat. Uh people talking about PS4 and the uh the black hat talk. I believe the black hat talk for the PS4 WebKit issue is on the 10th. That being said, um, as far as I'm aware, Black Hat is a it's a paid conference. It's not like this talk is just going to be streamed for free, I don't think. So there's a lot of people that are hyped about it. Uh, I, I think they don't realize that the pass for Black Hat, I think the pass is like 430 pounds or something. It is not cheap. So unless you have a pass or you know somebody that has a pass, you, you probably won't be getting that information until like months down the line when they release the talks on like YouTube or whatever. Um, I'm not 100% confident on that, but I believe that, you know, people who are expecting to see public information on, on the 10th might be disappointed. Don't, don't, don't get too hyped up for it. Um, because it's possible that we, that, that information is not, uh, immediately public. So, all right, with that said, we'll move into some shout outs. So excess leaks wiki, um, Google. I think this is an update, right? This this wiki has been around, but I think they just did like a massive update for it. Am I correct on that? As far as I'm aware, it's new. Uh, I've, I've never 
I didn't know I thought that before. First. Um, it sounded like um, I'll see if I can pull up the actual Google post. Um, but it seemed like it was um something that they just launched. I'm just trying to find the uh post from Google here and bring it up now. Um, yeah, they say here uh, to promote better understanding of these issues and protect the web from them. Today marks the launch of XS Leaks Wiki, an open knowledge base which the security community is invited to participate in, where researchers can share information about new attacks and defenses. Okay, yeah, so it was launched. For some reason, I thought that it was uh, like existed, but it was updated. But I, I can't find where the quote was that made me think that. So, oh well. Yeah, either so, way. Yeah, okay, it was a launch. Yeah, it, it's an interesting looking wiki. Um. So we've talked a little bit about cross-site leaks before. Um, I think a lot of a lot of what we've talked about has been more related to cross-site search vulnerabilities. Uh, but this kind of just classifies a bit larger as cross-site leaks. So when we've talked about things like um, information being exposed over that post message, those post message broadcasts, um, that's something they're including as a cross-site leak. So they're basically defining this category of uh, types of attacks and covering um, information about how you can explain um, out of chat. It's asking, aren't excess leaks dead with the Chrome same site per default? Uh, some of them are. Things like this post message broadcast, I believe, would still be exploitable, but they do actually include on some of the pages where relevant uh, the defenses and what defenses actually protect. So, like I just brought up the ID attribute. So, that's like, um, I want to say similar to like the DOM clobbering idea where you create create an element. Um, or no, they do something different with this one. Uh, so they leak information uh, using the ID attribute. So you create an iframe targeting uh, some ID. And then if you if uh, if you have a object with focus on your own page, um, when you create that iframe, load the iframe, you can determine if that iframe has an object uh, on there. Uh, with that ID, because you'll lose focus from your from your field onto the iframe. Um, anyway, uh, it, it does talk about how some things do defend against it, but not everything is defended. Uh, a lot of the a lot of them are going to be with the same site cookies protecting them, but not every issue, and they cover a lot more than just something more traditional. Like I said, the cross site search I think is the one that I always think of. Uh, which they cover in here, but they cover some other issues. Um, definitely interesting, some things I didn't know about. Um, so, I mean, yeah, interesting wiki that they've launched. I look forward to kind of seeing what comes out there and want to give it that shout out. Yeah, I think this could be really useful as a quick reference. Um, I especially like the table that's included at the bottom for the defense and exactly, like, it's a very like quick and clear indication of what it does and doesn't defend against. And that, that can be very useful for those quick references. Um, yeah, and they include a bit or a good amount also about the defense mechanisms too. It's not just the attacks. Yeah. Um, what's worth noting here too, is they are looking for contributions. So if you're, if you see something or you've seen something in your work or whatever that you don't see listed in here and you want to add it, um, they have contribution guidelines Basically, you just have to open a pull request to the to the wiki repository. So yeah, you can contribute to it if you if you want to. Um, uh, Z, I know you had a shout out as well about uh, hacking one hundred and one by No Starch Press. 
Yeah, well, I just want to call the fact there's a humble bundle going on right now. There we go. Oh, from No Starch Press, who is one of my favorite kind of security publishers. I mean, they have other books too, but um, you've got some of the classics in there like Hacking Art of Exploitation, which I'm now, thanks to Spectre, you know, not tr are trying hard not to recommend too often anymore, but it is in there for $1.31 Canadian, or I assume that's $1 US. Um, there's a lot of good books in here, though. Like last year, I said I was a little bit disappointed by the Humble Bundle, which I want to say was packed. Um, I did that bundle. No Starch always has really good books. Hacking Guard of Exploitation, even though I don't go out of my way to recommend it anymore because there are free online resources, it's still probably the best book that introduces you to the exploit development. Really basic exploit development, but still kind of the best introduction in book form. Uh, practical malware analysis, kind of some dynamic reverse engineering stuff in there. A lot of good tips out of it. It's pretty old. Age is definitely showing by this point. But still, it's looking at that dynamic analysis. It's not a bad book. Uh, James Forshaw has a book in here called Attacking Network Protocols. Really dense book. A um, lot of good information out of it. Basically looking at network analysis from a security perspective. As far as I know, it's the only book that's really doing that. A lot of network books are kind of covering uh, more of the forensics aspect of it. Um, and of course, I mean, James Forshaw is definitely well known on that or in the security industry. Uh, Practical Binary Analysis um, is a book I've been referring to lately as I've been doing a bit more or trying to build out some of my own tools to do the analysis. Uh, serious Cryptography. I wish I had this book when I was getting started with uh, both just consulting and dealing with some of the crypto issues. Um, yeah, basically a lot of really good books out of this. And then at the end there, uh, all of the books in the last tier where you have to pay uh, about 20 bucks or whatever uh, US. I'm not sure what the exact, it's 2365 Canadian. They're all new. So there haven't been bundles with these books as far as I'm aware. So that includes Black Hat Go, which I was super disappointed with. Uh, but I was looking forward to it for quite a while. Rootkits and Bootkits, I've heard good about. I haven't read it. Um, and I've actually reviewed real-world bug hunting on a previous episode. On a Spectre, if there are any books out of this that kind of stand out to you. Um, well, I did have a bit of a question. Uh, I don't remember you mentioning to me why you were disappointed about Black Hat Go. Because I, I remember you being excited for it, but I don't remember. Maybe I just have a bad memory. Um, why, why were you disappointed with Black Hat Go? Um, as, as a book, I was just kind of disappointed with the contents of it. Like, it's not the worst book ever. It's just, I don't know, I'll pull up the table of contents here. Um, you've got some TCP stuff, uh, you know, doing HTTP clients with it. A little bit of packet processing. I don't know. I just, none of the topics really, really excite me, like, or even felt all that interesting compared with like Black Hat Python. Um, I mean, if you're wanting to learn Go and you want to have some more security centric projects to play around with, like, sure, it's not like it's not worthwhile. I don't know. I just maybe, maybe it was built up for a while and I was just ultimately disappointed, but you just expected more, I guess. I, yeah, I just kind of expected something different, I guess. It's like I said, it's not that it's bad. Um, 
bit more on the pen testing side, but so was Black Hat Python, so I couldn't expect it to be exploit dev, but yeah, it just, I don't know, it has a different feel to me than Black Hat Python, which is what I was kind of comparing it with. So regarding your question, um, I, I don't really have many like any recommendations that I can think of at the moment in the book list. That said, there are some books in here that I would be interested to check out. Um, the Hardware Hacker, for one, uh, I've been building an interest in, in hardware hacking. I think it's a really interesting field um, that that could kind of be like a fun hobby to look at on the side to, you know, kind of take the distraction or to distract away a little bit from uh, some the software exploit development that I do or look at like daily or whatever. Um, the other one I think might be useful is the real world bug hunting uh, field guide to web hacking. That could be an interesting book for people who are looking into web stuff. And like you said, these the books in the twenty dollars tier are newer. Um, but overall, yeah, and when I you reviewed look at... um, the real world bug hunting back on episode twenty two. I just had to pull that off. Um, but ultimately, I think it's a great reference book. I wouldn't go to it to learn a lot of the techniques, but it is great source to kind of see real bug bounty reports from of issues. Um, and, you know, maybe get a little bit of inspiration just browsing through it or see how somebody dealt with something, you know, in the real world, not just CTF-ish. Overall, though, Humble Bundle is is a really awesome uh, program, and we'll pretty much always bring them up when they have, like, security-related bundles, because they're just, it's a good deal, it's good cause, you know, the money goes to charity, and you can even... There's even sliders that you can denote how much you want to go to whatever charities they're running for uh, for that launch. So, yeah, I really like Humble Bundle, so I like bringing them up. Um, yeah, I do they, have... they've always got, like, I mean, as you said, money goes to charity. So, uh, you know, I'm always happy to buy some of them, even when I own most of the books in it already. Yeah. Um, I do have a last minute shout out ad. This one even comes as a surprise to see because I forgot to bring it up before we started um it's nothing super uh super technical at the moment but it will be um gamozo labs some of you might have heard of him we've talked about him in the context of fuzzing before um he is going to be working on an operating system which is targeted specifically for fuzzing um so it has like optimized memory management and scalability and stuff like that in mind and he's going to be doing live streams. Um, I think he's starting the streams. Yeah, he says streaming will start sometime on Thursday, December 10th. Um, and they will be relatively random. So there's not like a scheduled stream, but he's he's going to be doing streams of working on this operating system. And I think some of the people who watch us will find that interesting and uh, and might want to you know have an opportunity to look at that. This was just posted yesterday, so that's why it's kind of a last minute ad. But um, yeah, I mean, keep a lookout on it. It's... OS dev in general is interesting and fuzzing is interesting. Combining them together, I think, it could could be really fun. So, yeah, keep a lookout for it. Yeah, and his streams are also just very good. Always kind of fuzzing focused, a lot of development or developing fuzzers. Really good content out of his streams, too. Yeah. With that said, we'll wrap it up here. Uh, thank you to everyone who tuned in. You can catch the VODs on Twitch or on YouTube at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Tuesday after the stream. Uh, we also have previous podcasts up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more links on Anchor. Um, if you want to join our community, you can join our Discord. Uh, the link is in chat or in the description of the video. Follow us on Twitter for newest updates. Um, 
once again, we will be going on break in after next week. So next week will be our last episode for two weeks, and then we come back on the 4th of January. Um, but yeah, with that said, we'll be back again next Monday for our final episode before the break, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific. We'll see you all then.